Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Good afternoon. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. Those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening, we'll be hearing from Dr. Stephen Meyer. Dr. Meyer received his undergraduate degrees at the University of Wisconsin in political science and mathematics. He received his MS degree in political science from Fordham University and a PhD in comparative politics at Georgetown University. After a long career at the Central Intelligence Agency as an analyst and manager specializing in European and Russian affairs, Dr. Meyer taught security studies, American foreign policy, Russian and European politics, and environmental security. He has published many articles and contributed to several books. Currently, he is writing a book on opportunities lost after the Cold War. He lectures extensively in the U.S. and Europe. Dr. Meyer, welcome. Thank you for being with us. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Hannah. It's a great honor and pleasure to be here with you and with uh, your audience from the IWP. Uh, I hope the next hour we can uh, have some fruitful discussion. I will, um, as I was requested, talk for a while, and then I would love to have a discussion with everyone because I find that that is the most productive part of kinds of, of uh, lectures and interactions. What I would like to talk about this afternoon actually grows out of some of the work I've been doing on American foreign policy and some of the things I've been teaching on American foreign policy uh, over the years and also uh, being a practitioner through the intelligence community but into uh, the foreign policy community uh, when I was at Central Intelligence Agency. Um, I also taught at the National Defense University, so I was technically a uh, Department of Defense employee and did some consulting uh, at DOD and with the State Department. My basic thesis is, is what I want to talk about is what is or should foreign policy look like in the next administration from my not-so-humble opinion. Um, this is kind of a strategic look. Uh, we can certainly just tactical uh, issues if you like, um, and that's a logical follow-up. Uh, my basic thesis is that we have been following um, not only in the with the current administration but before the current administration since the end of the, uh, what I call Phase One of the Cold War when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, we have been following a very counterproductive and increasingly dangerous foreign policy. Uh, and I think that it is high time, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, by the way, uh, high time that would change. The real question is whether there will be significant change in the next administration, whether that's a continuation of the Trump administration or a Biden administration. 
main problem, I think, for uh, foreign policy is that we tend to rest on our laurels. We tend to look behind us backward for successes, and we tend to try to replicate those in periods of time where they really don't apply anymore. It's, uh, it's kind of like the old, the old saying that uh, the United States military likes the last war we won because we're very good at that. That was really World War II, and that our military policy is essentially built on that posture with some certain, certainly some deviations and some differences. Um, if you, some of you, I'm sure many of you know the book, uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. Uh, Kuhn argues in that brilliant little book that paradigms of science tend to cling on and on once, even after they have used, uh, even if they have become extinct in reality. Um, we can also talk to uh, Newton's law of motion, that paradigms die, according to Newton, only when confronted by a counterbalance force. In other words, countering inertia. Inertia is a powerful tool, not only in science, but in politics as well. One final uh, historical example, and many of you I know uh, are aware of Plato's uh, Republic, Book 7, The Allegory of the Cave, where people are chained, men are chained in a cave, and they can only see shadows on the wall, and that's what, they, that's what forms their reality. Um, the point is that we are forced, we, we don't give up paradigms unless we are forced to do so, even if they're no longer applicable. It's true for science, it's true for politics, there's this propensity to look backward for answers for the future. The fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 should have been one of those unbalancing moments that forced us to take another, take a hard look at our foreign policy, foreign security policy, and adapt it to the current age. Sadly, it did not. There were a group of us at CIA who, in the Clinton administration, uh, formed a group. And we actually got members of that group from state, from the military, from other agencies, who tried to talk to the president and to the vice president about the need to uh, change course. And in particular, that had to do with our doubling down on NATO, uh, which was a wonderful tool for the Cold War, but we were arguing that it was not so much a wonderful tool for the post-Cold War period. So instead of doing that, we doubled down on the old paradigm. We ostracized Russia. Uh, we reaffirmed and extended NATO. We engaged in arrogant and smug chest thumping. Uh, we disparaged the Russians. We told the Russians that if they really wanted to come west, they had two avenues, security, they had to be westernized and uh, not join NATO, but they could have an appendage, NATO, the NATO-Russia Act, which was essentially an act that kept the Russians out, not letting them in. Uh, and the European Union was the other major issue. We're not getting into that either. They had to deal with it. 
So, so we, we, in effect, told the Russians, here's what you have to do to be a good, vibrant, modern democracy. And we tended to, uh, we tended to preach to them, and we tended to, uh, we tended to tell them to be a successful modern democracy. These are things you have to do economically, politically, militarily. I'll say a bit more about that uh, in a moment. One of the other things I'm doing, I've been doing, is looking at the way wars end and what kind of peace follows. Trying to fit it into this pattern. Um, I'm dealing mostly with larger wars that reshaped enormous political entities. So if you go back to, for example, in the Napoleonic Wars, at the Congress of Vienna, when Metternich pulled the Congress of Vienna together, that Congress rejoined France through the concert of Europe. It became a major power in Europe again. And France was not excluded. Certainly, the Napoleonic period was ended, and the old conservative monarchy, which fit in with Europe very well at the time, was reaffirmed and reestablished. Um, the conservative forces, therefore, rallied around France, and France rejoined. After that, because France was not sitting humiliated, uh, not seething, uh, they became uh, bulwarks of, of French of the European system, and there was general peace in Europe. So of course, some smaller wars, but general peace in Europe for a hundred years. Take a look at World War One hundred years later. Very different, very different outcome. Germany's defeated, forced to change its political system. Kaiser had to go. War guilt, reparations, humiliation, disarmament, um, the anger it was the British and French, especially the French with Daladier, uh, who attempted to humiliate the Germans, make sure they would never try to rise again. David Lord George and the British brought into this. Wilson with the United States did not to that extent. As a matter of fact, later on, Wilson tried to, and the American administration tried to soften terms of the peace. But the die was cast, and this gives rise to fascism, to Hitler, to World War II, the resentment that caused World War II to the upheaval. Um, if you look at World War II, uh, it's different, of course, because the world uh, divides. It's bipolar now, this, the rise of the Soviet Union and the United States, two camps. But there was that standoff in which the allies of each side were fully incorporated into the model so that um, Western Europe became an appendage of the United States. Eastern Europe became an appendage of, uh, of the Soviet Union. There was not the kind of humiliation on any of the powers that we saw at the end of the First World War. In fact, by 1955, West Germany joins NATO. Um, none of this we saw none of the revenge that we saw at the end of the First World War. 
And again, there was, for one period of time, generalized peace through, uh, through Europe. There certainly were proxy wars. We saw proxy wars in Korea. We saw proxy, well, that also involved China, obviously. We also saw proxy wars in uh, Mozambique and uh, Angola. Um, just one more example, the end of the Cold War. Granted, the big asterisk here is this was not a shooting war. Um, as I said, there were some proxy wars. Again, the treatment of Russia resembled the treatment the Germans got during World War One. It was humiliated, it was lectured, I've said this before, and as long as uh, Boris Yeltsin was president, this worked. Uh, because Yeltsin, uh, uh, Boris Yeltsin was convinced that Russia, if it was to be successful, had to to resemble the West, adopt Western institutions, Western-style democracy. Uh, he was essentially willing to humble Russia. Not everybody was. Yeltsin fell in the year 2000. He was a sick man. He was an alcoholic. Um, Putin took over. Very different mindset. Um, he, he shepherded Russia through a 180-degree turn on many levels. Um, he was driven, and we cannot underestimate the power of revenge and anger in Russia for some of the things that it is doing and has been doing in the last few days, in the last few uh, years. Ukraine, threats to the Baltics, for example. Uh, standing up to the United States whenever possible. Um, he also changed, it's an authoritarian state, or a semi-authoritarian state, of course. But he changed the garb of the state. It was no longer Marxist-Leninist. It now had become a conservative, orthodox, nationalist state. Very similar to the kind of state the Tsars had for 300 years under the Romanovs. And this became very attractive to a lot of patriotic Russians, much more so than Marxism-Leninism. And you may remember that after Yeltsin was sworn in for the very first time in 2000 as president, first thing he did after the swearing in was to go across the street and be blessed by the Orthodox Church. Uh, whether as a true believer or not, is almost irrelevant to the story uh, because he uses the nationalism, the orthodoxy, the conservatism as the mantra for the Russian state. It's also a more appealing democracy for other countries, particularly in Europe. As both NATO and the European Union splinter uh, we see this kind of attractive philosophy resonating in places like Hungary, Slovakia. Uh, we see uh, pro-Russian positions by governments like that. We see similar reactionary uh, and conservative governments rising in Poland, in Italy, uh, challenging, uh, and, and even where they do not um, hold office, 
they are challenging in France, in Holland, in Finland, um, in Germany, growth of the right. This fits very well with where the Russians are. Um, so under, under Putin, the so-called Washington consensus on what it would take to bring Russia into the modern democratic orbit collapsed. And we have what I think is the second wave of the Cold War. Some of my colleagues argue that the Cold War never ended. Uh, and that is entirely plausible argument. I suggest that it is just a, it's a second wave. Uh, and we have we are back into uh, or continuing a Cold War with the Russians. Our behavior in the beginning, when the Soviet Union fell, uh, so angered Putin and the Russians that it encouraged them to, to uh, engage in some of the activities, to become vindictive. Doesn't necessarily blame us for everything they've done, of course. What I'm saying is there were possible opportunities for taking a different course of action. Uh, I remember uh, at a conference in Belgrade several years ago, meeting uh, Giri Dinsbier, who was the, uh, the late uh, Giri Dinsbier, who was the foreign minister of uh, the Czech Republic. And he and I sat and had a long conversation. He was told, he told me that the, uh, the Czechs, he and Václav Havel, had suggested that the West, that with the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, uh, NATO should go away too, that Europe should build its own architecture. He said that he was told in no uncertain terms, no, the only way that the Czech Republic and other people, uh, European countries from West was the EU and NATO. Eastbeer uh, said he thought at the time this was a mistake, but he had no choice. The other thing that was distracting for the United States, of course, was that 9-11 happened. Uh, the United States was consumed with terrorism issue. Uh, there was some unity and, and common perspective, as you may remember, uh, between the United States and Russia over terrorism. George w., uh, w. Bush and Putin actually had some points of agreement about uh, Islamic terrorism, which is a has been a major issue particularly in the southern part of Russia. Um, compounded with that, um, during that period of time, uh, we relied back on an old theorem of American foreign policy. And if you remember, we became we were the exceptional nation, the indispensable nation. Uh, we were the signing, shining silly city on a hill. Uh, a phrase that was coined by John Winthrop on the Mayflower, even before he got off the ship, when they established the Massachusetts Bay Colony, he said this would be a shining hill, uh, uh, a shining city on a hill. Now, Winthrop did not have in mind that we were going to go out into the world with that philosophy. He was talking about what we were going to establish, what they were going to establish there. From then on, um, there was the school of thought schools of thought that competed for um, primacy in American foreign policy. One of those was certainly the concept of the 
divine right of the United States. And as a matter of fact, the divine responsibility, and I mean that quite literally, became a uh, theological, a religious doctrine uh, adopted by the United States that by the will of God, we were gifted, we were given the right and the duty to bring democracy, to bring human rights, to bring uh, democratic governments to the rest of the world. This essentially became the Jeffersonian document, uh, uh, doctrine of um, an empire of liberty. This has been countered by John Quincy Adams' argument that we do not go out into the world to slay dragons. We provide an example for, uh, for the rest of the world, but we don't go out forcing this on this has been a constant point of debate in American foreign policy ever since the founding of the country. Uh, and quite interestingly, when the Soviet Union fell, when we began to deal with terrorism, uh, a number of writers began to write about the unipolar mo mo moment, American hegemony, um, the end of history. Uh, we, we began to hear people like Immanuel Kant raised again, Hegel, uh, and the most modern conception of that by Francis Fukuyama in the end of history. Uh, Fukuyama, by the way, has had to kind of eat those words uh, when that the end of history did not happen. Uh, we, we went out thinking we could save the world once we defeated terrorism. Uh, then we began to see the challenge of the rise of great powers. Again, the Russians came back, the Chinese were coming back, the countries. So we had this kind of dual problem that we were facing in uh, terrorism uh, and in, um, uh, in the rise, the, the rebirth of great powers. And George W. Bush administration, towards the end of their time, officially did change uh, the major security policy of the United States to focus again on great powers. Uh, the thing that stayed with us was this concept of the uh, shining city on a hill of the exceptional country, the exceptional nation. Uh, history did not end, but it did change. Uh, politics got became much more complicated. And this is where I think we have gone a bit off the rails, because we have this tendency in the United States and among our policymakers to cling to that, to that paradigm that is faded away and is fading away, fading away and is faded away. We cling to that paradigm of American hegemony. Germany, American unipolarity, uh, of, of American out in the world, the Wilsonian doc doctrine of peace, democratic, the democratic peace. There is nothing wrong with these concepts if they are in the proper context and in a theoretical sense. My contention is that the concept of exceptionality and so forth um, has gotten us into a lot of trouble. Uh, for example, Iraq was essentially built on that premise, that Iraq was the key. Wolfowitz made this statement many times, that Iraq was the key to the Middle East, 
if we took down Saddam Hussein, if we established democracy there, uh, it would spread through the Middle East. Many of us argued with Paul that this was not true. In fact, Iran was the key to the Middle East, not Iraq. And that if you took Iraq down, what you would cause is an imbalance in the Middle East that would empower the Iranians. That's just one example of this concept getting us into trouble. So where do we see, where do I see the reality of politics going? Politics is no longer, I think, literal or unidimensional. In other words, it's not just a question of military. Security is not just military any longer. Uh, it is not unidimensional. It is not linear. Uh, traditional realism and idealism as schools of thought, I think, have been shattered. I think they no longer apply because the whole system has changed. Um, I think we're now much closer to chaos theory uh, in an attempt to explain political reality, and by chaos, I'm not talking about confusion, I'm talking about you know, the, the, the complexity of the, the uh, multi-linear aspect of, of, of political reality. Uh, multipolar, multipolar, um, multidimensional. We still see the rebirth of states uh, coming out of the terrorist period. But there's sharing the same world stage now with non-state actors. Uh, non-state actors have grown enormously. And although right now we are in a, per a period of, of decline of, of, of sort of quiet with respect to terrorism, they're not dead, they're not gone. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity for them to come back. And that is something we also have to deal with have to redefine what we mean by security. And yet we, we continue to cling to the past because it is what we know best, because there is, I think there are four basic reasons we cling to that reality. One, we have lack of historical memory. We have a tremendous arrogance about American power by American politicians. The rebirth of a seething, resentful Russia and the rise of other countries that aren't seething the way they are, but they're very clever and very good about exploring and expanding their national interests. I'm thinking of Brazil, India, China, others. Um, okay, if you look back, if you look at our two political parties, their views on foreign and security policy, uh, you see rather sharp difference. The Democrats today are actually up to the more traditional party of the two contemporary parties. They set immediate, their, their foreign policy anchor is, 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 is sort of the end of phase one of the Cold War. Uh, the, the period of time in the early 1990s, when both Republicans and Democrats decided that the thing to do was defeat terrorism and build democracies. Uh, state building, we called it nation building, but it was really state building we were talking about. The democratic peace, human rights. Uh, these things are nothing wrong in theory, 
by any means. Uh, they're actually quite good. But they haven't worked. I can't think of any place where this concept has taken hold. We look at Iraq. Uh, this is what we tried in Iraq. Look at the Arab Spring, which uh, was essentially the democratic model, democratic party model, uh, during the, starting during the Clinton administration. And I can still remember Secretary of State Clinton uh, talking about the wonderful things that were going on in the Arab Spring. Well, it hasn't quite worked out that way, as we all know. And Syria is probably the saddest example of the collapse of the Arab, of the Arab Spring. Um, we have not seen that work almost anywhere. Now, some people argue, well, we saw it in Germany and Japan. A very different example. The Germans had, and the Japanese both had a tradition of parliamentary uh, parliament, of, of elections, of Germany during uh, during the pre-empire days, during the, before uh, 1871, uh, the Germans elected legislators. They were also industrialized. They were sophisticated. They were educated, as were the Japanese. These are very different cases. And essentially, um, what we did after the uh, collapse of the Soviet or during the Soviet Union period of the Soviet Union, after was we provided a military umbrella for both of those countries, but they essentially did the rebuilding. Uh, they essentially established their own uh, democratic political system. The German system, uh, the Grundgesetz, uh, the, the, the von Basic Law was a document written by Germans for Germans. I know, for example, that when we were dealing with Iraq, uh, the administration wanted to take uh, the documents that were being written and had been written in Germany uh, about how to set up this kind of democratic government and apply them to Iraq. Ian Bremer, in particular, was very strong on doing that. He argued with Bremer that this was such a different situation, it would not work. It was not relevant. And very different kind of education, very different kind of traditions, especially uh, so it, it, it just simply would not work. The Republican Party, so just, to, just to draw a line on the Democrats, they essentially hold this more traditional view. Uh, a Biden administration's foreign policy would be uh, quite traditional in that sense. He's already reaffirmed advocacy for NATO. He has reaffirmed an advocacy for building relationships with our traditional allies. Uh, he has reaffirmed um, we will be out in the world uh, creating democratic forms. Um, this, again, in theory is not bad, uh, but if he's thinking of it, and they are thinking of it in the sense of the Jeffersonian concept, it won't work. If, it's, if they're thinking about it in the sense of John Quincy Adams, it's more likely to work. Uh, but it's going to be a long, and slow, and tedious process, particularly with the way the world is going. We are seeing a renationalization of politics in Europe. The Russians are playing quite well, uh, much better, frankly, than we are right now. Uh, Republican Party. Until Trump, uh, they were pretty traditional, too. There was actually fairly little light between the two parties. 
at the end of the first phase of the Cold War, as I call it, uh, we saw the um, Republican, Republican and Democratic presidents talking about democratic peace, recapturing a Wilsonian idea of democracy. Uh, George W. Bush uh, sounded very much like a Democrat when he spoke about what we had to do in Iraq uh, after, after 9-11, what we had to do in Afghanistan, what we had to do in Pakistan. Not just defeat the enemy, but we had to rebuild. Language is very, very similar to the language that Clinton used uh, in 1993 when uh, we sent troops into uh, rangers into Mogadishu, uh, and the uh, they, they were killed, murdered. Uh, he had in the second phase of that uh, Somali exercise was to build the Somali democracy. And um, again, it never worked, it never, it never took off. It never, it, it, just the, the traditions, the uh, political forces, the weight of time, uh, history was just not there. And it has uh, ended in pretty much in disaster. When Trump took over the Republican Party, and it has essentially, I think, become Trump's party. Uh, he has cowed uh, most of the Republican Senate and House members uh, into supporting him. Those Republicans who had uh, rebelled uh, have mostly left the Senate, people like uh, Senator Flake from Arizona. Uh, and it's got to do particularly with the strength of, of, uh, of uh, Trump's base uh, in, in the Republican Party, among the Republican electorate. Um, so Trump has Trump has changed not only domestic policy, but he has changed the view of, uh, of the party with respect to the foreign security policy. Uh, and I think that it is just as dangerous in a different way, and just as off key as the Democrats are, but in a different way. Uh, Trump's major shift, his model, doesn't go back to just after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It goes back, as my view, in my mind, to the 19th century. Because his, is a, his foreign policy is a policy that is built essentially on autarky and xenophobia. Um, this, I think, is a counterproductive position to hold in an age of growing globalization. Uh, we, you know, the president tends to argue that he created the best economy that the United States has ever seen. Well, that's one point. It's not true. But the other thing is that the economy began to grow uh, in 2009, right after the financial collapse ended in the Obama administration, uh, and it has continued under Trump, but it has really gotten its spurs, it's earned its spurs, the fact that um, it was not closed to other parts of the world. It was engaged. Uh, it was multilateral. It was globalizing. It was wise as globalization. Um, my concern is, and the concern of a lot of us, is that 
the second Trump administration, there will be a further attempt to uh, to um, hinder, to end, maybe not end, but hinder, uh, reduce globalization. And I think that that's a fool's journey because with technology, what it is, uh, communications, with what they are, transportation, it all boils down to the question of technology. Um, this will not allow a country to be prosperous if it tries to shut down the uh, technology, the transportation, uh, the communications. Uh, there has to be best-in-time production, manufacturing. There has to be competitive pricing. There have to be worldwide webs of, of uh, production. Um, I used to ask my students, can you name an American car company? An American car, let me put it that way. A Ford, I said, take a look at how a Ford is built. Its parts are built all over the world. They're manufactured primarily in the United States, but these parts come from all over the world. And Fords are built elsewhere. But more Toyotas are now built in the United States than are built in Japan. Uh, you, cannot, you cannot backpedal on this kind of technological globalization. Um, that does not mean we have to see a political or a military globalization, but it does behoove us to look at those in a more globalized sense. Ultimately, under um, uh, a Trump second term, if he continues with the policies he has, our economics will suffer. Uh, they already have. The tariff war has already hurt certain industries. Uh, and it's beginning to undermine the economy that began in 2009. So, where do we go, in my opinion? We have to do three sort of strategic basic things. We have to make an assessment, an honest and full assessment, what kind of world we are, in, we are facing. At the cusp of the 21st century, what are the realities of the world? I mean, and we can put together the president together a, a commission, for example, uh, lots of people have dealt with this issue. Uh, what are the realities of that world out, out there? What, what, are they, what are the metrics? Um, the second question is, what are our interests in that world? Um, are they economic? Are they political? Are they humanitarian? How do we balance them? Uh, what, what kind of weapons, what kind of, of Departments, agencies, do we use? And how do we pursue those interests? I think those three basic, those three basic questions uh, have to be answered. I've toyed around. I've toyed with this a little bit. I've written a little bit about it. Um, this is. I'm working on a book, uh, as Hannah mentioned in the beginning, that um, is trying to deal with some of these issues. And let, let me just run through a few things I think we need to be taking a look at. So I'm sort of jumping ahead from the perspective of uh, assessment um, interests and how we pursue those interests. Um, again, let me, number one, to start with, this is, you know, to start with, we can, we can use these as sort of bellwethers, sort of launching points. Uh, we have to recognize and come to grips with, with the nonlinear 
and complexity of the, of the international environment. Overlapping issues, much more so in the past. But again, as I've suggested a couple of times now, this has an awful lot to do with the drive of technology. It is, it is essentially driving politics, it is driving economics, it is driving medicine, it is driving all sorts of things. Second, we have to take cognizant of the fact and deal with the fact that states and non-states are now major players, both. Uh, and it's not a matter of uh, where states are involved in some issues and non-states in some issues, other issues. States and non-state actors are involved in all issues. Uh, in an article I wrote with a colleague, we talked about it being more like a lava lamp than by being separate discrete squares. Um, third, uh, we have to pull back on the inter interventionist implications of exceptionalism, indispensability, manifest destiny. We have to come to grips with the concept that we cannot let American foreign policy be guided in each and every sense by exceptionalism, indispensability, manifest destiny, city on shining city on the hill. It has gotten us into enormous trouble over the years. And by the way, uh, that has also been the cornerstone of certain white man's burden concept, uh, giving us sort of an ethnic and racial superiority. You can go back into the 19th century and see very detailed arguments for why uh, people of color uh, not rule themselves. Uh, this led up to things like the Spanish-American War. You can go back into history and see very concrete arguments for um, for the fact that it has to be the white West that rules, that teaches. Uh, we have had uh, government officials and senators I know of uh, that have written, that, whose work I've looked at, have argued that we, um, we must take control of, thing, of, of, of these spaces. Like, for example, after the Spanish-American War, the Philippines was a prime example. Because it's simply, quote unquote, these people cannot rule themselves. Uh, we have to get rid of that. Which it's better now, yes, but we have to get away from the extent that is still present and wrapped into the exceptionalism concept. I think we have to see a reform of the Goldwater Nichols Act of 1986 for the military. We have to see an end, I think, to the concept of the combatant command. I'm writing something on it too, that system. We cannot and do not have to be everywhere in the world. We do not have to cover the world with a combatant command every place on the earth. Um, we have to have forward deployments in areas that are of critical national interest. And that, of course. So in places where, for example, uh, we have uh, trade routes, critical trade routes. I can understand and would support uh, the concept, the idea of forward American presence, but it is not needed everywhere, and it is enormously expensive. Um, yet we cling to that that hegemonic 
understanding of the deployment and the use of the American military. In that connection also, we have to do a lot more to prepare for the new face of war. By new face or faces for cyber, we don't do enough. Uh, we are getting better, but it's, we, are, we are a long way from where we need to be. Uh, not only cyber, but uh, smaller wars, non-world wars, bush, brush wars, so forth. Not every brush war needs to be a product or be uh, an issue for the U.S. Fifth, we have to build, we have to, I think, concentrate on building political, economic, and military coalitions based on mutual need and interest. Uh, there are parts of the world where we can build uh, an economic coalition. I think the Trans-Pacific uh, uh, was a, a good place, and I think it's regretful that we, we dropped out of that. Um, we, uh, there are actually, um, there are actually uh, agreements we can make with uh, the Chinese, with the Europeans, with the Canadians that go beyond what we have. Uh, for the mutual benefit of everyone. I think six, we have to redefine security, expand the definition and commitment. Uh, this goes back to the concept of overlapping issues and, and technology. Military and traditional military issues, of course, we have to maintain a credible strategic military uh, capability, Men and women in uniforms, traditional guns, metal chips, planes, etc. We also have to prepare for economic and trade issues, economic trade and finance issues, which we do not do uh, nearly enough. We do not see environment as a national security issue. And in this administration, it is actually dismissed as a national security issue. And I can tell you, I did this for a while at CIA. Uh, and the Defense Department was out in front on requiring intelligence and proposing that environmental security, including climate change, was an extremely important American interest. Um, migration. We have seen that uh, with Europe. We have an issue of migration with our own country. Um, pandemics. Need we say any more than what we are involved in now? Probably one of the reasons we're doing this by Zoom is because we can't get together because of a pandemic. These kinds of things, pandemics, migrations, environment, uh, terrorism, military, these are all security issues that have to be taken seriously. We have to, do, we have to designate the, the resources for them. Seventh, uh, and I'm almost done, guys. Seventh. Not a minute. Seventh, arms control, um, especially nuclear weapons. Uh, we are in a second nuclear age, and the current administration actually encourages that. We have the new start ending with, this, with the Russians very soon. I have lost you and... How do I get back to this? I'm sorry. Let 
we can still see you on our end. Can you? Oh, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. All right, here we go. Oh, now we lost him. Okay, thanks. Got it. Um, as I was saying, arms control. Am I still there, Hannah? Um, we can't see your video. I think you just need to start your video. Okay. There you go. Okay, thank you. Sorry about that, guys. No worries. Uh, I'm, I'm technologically challenged. So, um, as I say, we have had now a uh, a very new and a new and very dangerous uh, explosion, un unintended, of nuclear weapons and a second nuclear age. Not only the traditional nuclear powers of the United States, Russia, China, but we have others now too, uh, France and Britain, of course, but now North Korea, India, Pakistan, Israel, uh, and uh, we are constantly looking at what uh, the ways that nuclear weapons can be spread to, uh, to terrorists. Uh, finally, uh, I think we have to invest much more in areas like intelligence, research, science, and technology than we have so far as a national government. Um, intelligence part of this will become increasingly important i think because of the complexity of the issues because there is so much um there's so much out there that uh so much information now that it's very difficult to follow uh, so we have to intelligence intelligence technology research science and so forth let me end it there. We have time if you want to, to uh, chat a bit. Great, thank you. We do have a few questions coming in. Again, if you have a question for Dr. Meyer, please feel free to comment in the Q&A portal at the bottom of your screen. Um, so the, the first question we have, should we seek a new national security act? And if so, what should it look like to build sound strategy and implement that strategy? It's a great question, and yes, uh, I think that the National Security Act of 1947 is now uh, overtaken by events. Uh, I could easily include that in my discussion and probably should have. Um, it rests on a world that was relevant for 1947, uh, and it was a very good document for its time. But I think it needs to be updated with a lot of the concepts that I think I, that I've been talking about and others have been talking about, to uh, talk about where we need to invest our money, how we need to build intelligence, what kind of what kind of defensive structure should we have, what kind of military posture should, posture should we have. Yes, absolutely. Another question here. What are your thoughts on economic security increasingly, be tr increasingly being treated as national security? Um, I think that it has to grow. I think we have we are in a better place than uh, we have been. But I, th I don't think we are we are where we need to be yet. Uh, part of that has got to do with um, uh, we, we certainly do have a problem with with, with China. Uh, trade wars, I don't think, are the answer. I think dealing with the Chinese, for example, on, on, on an economic front, uh, with respect to uh, mutual agreements about what's to be produced, how it's to be produced. Uh, market exposure, um, building up the um, 
building up international agreements, international organizations that deal with, uh, with this, uh, with economic security. It's increasingly important. And it's increasingly important because of technology again, because of the, um, the, the thrust that technology has in, in creating a much, much smaller world, much less, much more interdependent economically. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, you know, we had the um, had NAFTA. The current administration uh, saw that as a detriment and changed it. In matter of fact, not much has really changed from NAFTA. There were a few things that were improved. Uh, but I think we need to do that and more with a lot of a lot of different areas. I think it has to be a major component of of security issues. What are examples of good national strategy and application? And what are the elements of sound strategy if the use of past successful paradigms are perilous? I, I think that we one of the things we have to do is decide what's in our national interest. This was, was one of my questions. Uh, do we, for example, where does where does humanitarian action uh, rest in the national interest? Do we Construct a, uh, should a pillar of our national security, of our uh, of our national security and foreign policy, be that we intervene in um, uh, in humanitarian issues? And if so, how do we do that? I think a, a bad example of that was the intervention, as I suggested, in Somalia, not phase one, where we essentially provided food and a. Uh, a platform for peace by trying to bring groups together. It's when we attempted to build a nation state, step two, that it went off the rails. And uh, I, I think that we have to take each of these areas, see how they're interlinked. Uh, so yeah, humanitarian, uh, how do we pursue a national economic policy? Uh, what are our goals? Um, uh, what metrics do we use? Um, where do we see uh, points of national national security, national threats to our national interest? Uh, we used to be, for example, I, I used to advocate that we needed uh, we needed forward presence in Persian Gulf uh, more than we have now because of oil. Uh, well, we don't need that so much anymore. So I think that we can pull back on that. And maybe trade routes, for example, um, in in the in the Pacific, in Indonesia, for example, uh, the Indonesian waters, critical major trade routes impact us and our national interest. Well, there should be, I think, forward deployments concentrating on that. Uh, but one of the things I think, in the context of, of the of a new national security act, um, is to get rid of the combatant commands and to focus on those areas of national security. My question to Dr. Meyer is the current and unprecedented retreat of American leadership in the world just as the collapse of the Soviet U Union. Has it become a new paradigm in international affairs that will open up a so-called counterbalancing force in place of America? I, I don't think so. Uh, if there's a couple. There's a couple of dynamics. A couple of things to that question. I think that 
one of the things that's happening, which I didn't go into specifically, has been the relative decline of the United States. Now, I don't mean that in an absolute sense. We are an enormously powerful country, uh, militarily, economically, politically, and so forth. What has happened since, it's, it's really since the end of World War II, not so much since the collapse of the Soviet Union, is we have begun to see other countries and uh, non-state non actors become increasingly powerful so that they are looking at us and saying, we are equal, we are there. Um, and, and it's been a relative decline. And that's a, that's a good deal of the reason we have to restructure our foreign policy. I think if there's four more years of Republican rule, um, there will be, without the kind of reforms, uh, this will become an increasingly tenuous situation. Under a Biden administration, I think he will attempt to go back to the old forms. And I don't think that will work either. I think what we have to do, and this is a great question, is understand we're on a, in a world now where the playing field is much more even, um, where Vladimir Putin really doesn't care what we say. He really doesn't care if we like what he does and, and doesn't do. Uh, where Xi Jinping really doesn't care. Uh, you know, they're going to do what they do. They're not going to stop. Uh, they will continue the Silk Road. They will continue to grow economically. And they're saying to the United States, deal with it. Um, yeah, we can deal with it. But we do not have the margin of error, quote a friend of mine. We do not have the margin of error to act internationally the way we used to. Uh, we now have, it's much more limited. We have to pick and choose have to restructure. This The question is great because it gets to the point, exactly to the point. That's how we exercise leadership, I think, uh, within, within spheres, uh, within, uh, I'm talking about, about uh, functional spheres, politics, economics, security. Uh, we're still going to be the world's most powerful nation militarily, for example. Well, if, if war breaks out, that's one dimension. But Chinese are not really going to come at us that way. I mean, the Chinese will come at us with cyber. They'll come at us economically. And by the way, you know, the Defense Department has even now, uh, has some time ago, argued that our policy of being able to fight two-front two war is now obsolete. We can't do that anymore. Uh, and we have to take what DOD says seriously with that. It's a different world. Another question, with the interests of international companies' bottom line taking precedence over national security, how do you control regulations? Yeah, that's a great question because it becomes much more difficult um, to, 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 not, to have uh, regulations that are national regulations without uh, the cooperation of other states. Uh, this is one of the places you have to have that kind of coalition coordination. For example, uh, you can point to any number of companies who uh, have their headquarters in, say, the United States. But they have no production in the United States. It's all overseas. Uh, it's in the Middle East. It's in Africa. It's in Asia. Uh, look at the production that, um, that uh, stores like uh, Walmart have in China. Uh, enormous numbers of products are made by the Chinese uh, that are imported by Walmart. 
Uh, if we're going to have regulation on, on companies like that, there has to be international agreement to do that. Um, there is no hesitation now about companies moving to other countries to, to where they find cheaper labor, uh, more favorable economic and environmental conditions, uh, better tax, better tax laws. So what we have to do is we have to sit down with whomever, with the Chinese, maybe that's a hard, that's going to be a harder one, but with the British, the French, whoever, European Union, and discuss reciprocity in regulation beyond what we have. We have some of that, but we don't have enough. Uh, and trade wars will be the death of us if we allow that to happen. So it's, it's a really great question. Regulation is much more complex, much more multilateral now. All right, two more quick questions for you. Um, you these will be real fast, uh, but you mentioned a book by Boone about the characteristics of scientific achievements. Could you restate the book title and author? Structure of Scientific Revolution, Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, A-U-H-N. It's an excellent book. I have all my students, my students always read it. And then another uh, attendee is asking, you know, when is your book going to be available and what is the title? They entered late. So if you could just. Well, it's, it's, uh, I don't know exactly when it's coming out. Uh, I'm probably quarter to a halfway through it. Um, and uh, I've got a several publishers interested in doing it. I'd like to get it out through university press if I could. Uh, so I, I'm just not sure. I've also got other, uh, other lots of other commitments uh, that I'm working on, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. So hopefully, hopefully within the next year and a half. Great. Well, that is all the questions that we have and, and we're also out of time, but I would just like to thank Dr. Meyer for joining us this evening and all of you who tuned in on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much, everyone. Glad you came along. Nice to, nice to talk to you. Have Bye. a good evening. Bye, Hannah. Bye.